talking about this area of spiritual warfare, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off, understanding this, that in His image means that we are God's representative. God has always had a representative on the earth. First it was Adam, then it became Israel, then ultimately it became Jesus. He was the express image of the invisible God. And now today it is you and I, all believers who are born again, who walk in that, that fullness of that, what the gospel is, is a representative of God. And so this is where the idea of not taking his name in vain comes from, is that we don't just haphazardly just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. There are strings attached to that. And what Jesus was preparing was preparing his disciples for something very unique. And remember, our focus now here in the moment is about spiritual warfare. And as we get into this, I want you to understand something. Spiritual warfare I've taught on before. But I'm teaching on it this time from a different angle. And it's going to be stuff that you all kind of know, but I bet you haven't thought about. And so that's my goal here, is to get us thinking correctly. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he said, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So his command was to make disciples. He told his disciples to go and make disciples. Well, how can they do that? Because all authority has been given to him. So as a result of that, the command that he gave now can be carried out on the earth. Because he didn't just say, hey, let's just go. He gave them the power that they needed to do it. A disciple is somebody who just is a reflection of the original. A carbon copy, if you will. We're lesser in the sense that we are not the Son of God, but we are equal in the sense that we're full of the same Holy Spirit. Now, here's the part that I want you to think about. When He made the declaration to go and make disciples, He is now telling His followers, I want you to actively engage in spiritual warfare. Think about that for a moment. When you are out making disciples, what kingdom are you attacking? the kingdom of darkness see we don't think about it in this light because we don't have any concept of kingdoms right we vote for our leaders now if you want to argue whether those votes count or not that's for another day but we choose our leaders if you want to argue whether it's really a choice of ours or not that's for another day but these kingdoms think about it when we go into the past what were they doing they were going from one land to another, conquering kingdoms and taking them for themselves. What is a disciple maker doing? He's going into the kingdom of darkness and bringing those people over to the kingdom of light. So you are actively engaged in spiritual warfare. Why do you think you were told to put on the armor? You see, we look at it from a defensive mechanism. But it truly is offensive in its nature. Now, let's look at another one. John chapter 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay? So what should we expect? We should expect to do the same things. Why? We're actively engaged in what Jesus was doing. 
So did Jesus do something that you and I can't? Conceivably, is it possible for a person to walk on water? Conceivably, right? I've never done it. Never really tried either. But what I'm saying is, is there may be unique circumstances. But what we certainly know is we should preach the gospel. We should heal the sick. We should raise the dead. We should go after the kingdom of darkness. See, and here's another one in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as yourselves, you yourselves also know. So as we follow Jesus' example, what drew attention to him? Miracles, signs, and wonders. But what were they for? To defeat the kingdom of darkness. Acts 10.38. How Jesus was anointed by God to destroy the works of the devil. You see, by signs, wonders, miracles, making disciples, Jesus was actively engaged in spiritual warfare. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why did they need power? Do you need power in your life? The power of the Holy Spirit to attend church on a Sunday. Do you need the power of the Holy Spirit to sit at home and pray and read your Bible? Why did they need power? Because they were actively engaged in spiritual warfare. You see, this is part of the reason we've got it wrong. is because we have taken what God intended to advance a kingdom, and we've taken it and relegated it, and Lord, we want one of those services where the Holy Spirit falls, and we all just get blessed and we get touched. Is that what he said? In fact, that was never even implied. Isn't that interesting? When we talked about Jesus never once told people, like, hey, follow me and I'll show you how to get to heaven. That's kind of a belief system that we have, but we never say it that way, but truly is, that's how we act. It's the same thing with the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit was to go and make those disciples, to go and attack that kingdom. But we've turned it into, Lord, bless me, touch me, I want to feel something, I want to hear from you. We don't need armor for that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, are you ready for this? Now, he tells us to put on the armor. Why? So that we can stand against the wiles of the devil, right? That's what it says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against what? Principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, here's the question for you. Who engages that wrestling match? Do we sit back and have this armor on, waiting just in case we might get attacked? Or was he intending that I'm not coming and arguing with Amy? I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. I need to have my head examined if I'm going to do that. But it's not. Her, it's the, the evil spirits behind her telling me to pick up my socks. Y'all know. You, you know. That's 
what we're talking about. But we've treated armor as if it is something that we put on in case we get attacked. Y'all, I'm here to tell you, you're going to be attacked. But you're only truly going to be attacked if you're a threat. How much of the church do you think is a threat to the kingdom of darkness today? Was Jesus a threat? Oh, yeah. Were his disciples a threat? Oh, yeah. Are we? We put on the armor as a defensive mechanism, and it is, don't get me wrong. It's important. But we're waiting on this devil, if you will, to show up and just say, I challenge you to a duel. Like, I'm armored up, let's go. You need the armor because you're going out and you're picking them. Let's keep going. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am present and lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that I am present, uh, when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we see once again our warfare not carnal. But again, we've implied this as if we're waiting for an attack instead of being on the offensive. Did the Israelites, when they were getting ready to go into the promised land, did God tell them, like, listen, I just want you to hang out here, and I'm going to send the Amalekites to you, and then you'll wipe them out. I'm going to send the Girgashites to you, and then you wipe them out. What did he tell them to do? Go into the land. They could have used that verse. When they're staring at these giants, says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But what did they look at? That's some big flesh and blood. We're but grasshoppers. Where do you find it in Scripture where we are defensive and not offensively minded? The answer is you won't. Yes, the armor is to protect you. Because we are in a battle. The battle never ends. The reason that the the battle, and I'm using this in quotes today, that we face in this country as, as, as believers in America is minor compared to other parts of the world. Do you know why? Because we're not a threat. They give up their lives to follow Jesus. We don't give up anything. We're not a threat because we're not actively engaged. I mean, we'll use Chad Gonzalez as, as you guys all well know. His wife passed away very unexpectedly. Right? I believe that was a spiritual attack. There's no question in my mind. Why do you think he attacked Chad's family? Maybe because he's a threat. Because in his ministry, people are starting to wake up to the reality of who they are and starting to do the same works that Jesus did. The problem we have is that we are in a spiritual battle unaware. Yes, there is a defensive component. No question. But we're unaware of the mission. Unaware of of the calling that God has in our lives where we are to go and to make disciples. See, we don't think about it right. Because every time that you go in there and you minister the gospel, what are you doing? You're sowing those seeds. You're attacking the gates of hell. 
And why do you think the angels celebrate when one person comes to the Lord? It's a battle won. You and I are the result of somebody having enough gusto to share the gospel. But the church today, and I'm talking about first world, the church today, we're comfortable. And we feel like nothing can come against us. No weapon formed against us will prosper. You know, we say that a lot. How many of y'all feel like there's been a weapon or two that prospered against us? Now, in reality, nothing can come against us and prosper, ultimately. Because take me out, I'm in a better spot. But that's not what it's talking about. You see, when we look at this, we're so comfortable. We've got it so good then we don't need to worry about this other stuff. Maybe they'll see a message on Facebook. Maybe if I share this thought-provoking meme, it will lead them to Christ. Maybe. But maybe if I wrote a letter to the president and I went outside and threw it in the air, the wind will blow it to the White House. Maybe. It's not impossible. It'd be a long letter. I got some ideas. You see, when Babylon fell, they didn't fall as a result of someone kicking down the door. They fell as a result of the fact that they weren't expecting anybody to be able to get through these impregnable walls. Nobody can get through this. It's impossible until it was possible, until they found a way in. They found one area of weakness, and they were so confident that nothing could come against them, that no weapon formed against them could possibly prosper, that they were partying and drinking booze out of the temple relics intended to serve God, worshiping the gods of silver and gold and bronze. And the entire nation falls before it even realized that it had fallen. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober, and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What's he doing? He's looking for the weak spot. Why? He's trying to take you out. Come back to that. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says, That in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, it says some will depart from the faith. They give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, we will drill into this further later on. But understand this. Why? They weren't prepared. The enemy found a way in. Convincing them. Did God really say that? You see, the thing I've taught on before, and you guys have heard this some of you guys have been around for a long time, understand this, but there are four components that every believer has to understand. Because you will never truly walk out a, a fulfilled life in God if you don't understand this. First of all, who is God? Who God is? That's number one. You have to be able to define that. Because just saying the word God, when you hear it on the radio, when you hear it at these awards banquets, at these movies, you know, the Actors Guild Award or whatever it is, when they say God, it doesn't mean big G God like you and I think necessarily. Could, doesn't. That's irrelevant. 
who God is. And how we know that is how He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. If we don't have that, then any idea we have about God could be possible. It's just a matter of opinion. I have somebody that I know who is sort of new age and sort of Christian. And the other day, she put something out. She, was, she asked the Spirit for some direction, pulled up the tarot card showing what it was and was reading out of some metaphysical book. And today, she was quoting out of Psalms. Makes sense. What do you think she believes? Well, God and this great Spirit and the universe, they're all one. Is that God, has God has revealed Himself? No. There is a standard. We don't get to choose it. So who God is is number one. Who I am in relationship to Him? Crucial. Because we're waiting on big G God with a giant sledgehammer waiting to just drop it on us the moment we get something wrong. That'll be the end of us. Is that how God has revealed Himself? No. Who we are in relationship to Him, we've got to understand. But the third component is who's my enemy? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing. Those are fun to argue about. It's the spirits. I have to know who my enemy is so I know what to look for. I have to understand how he attacks so I know what to look for. I have to understand the consequences of my action when I go into his kingdom and start plucking people out of his kingdom. I have to know what to expect. I told you guys when Chad was here last year that as he was going, the Holy Spirit warned me. He's like, get ready. Like, there's going to be attacks. And there was. Some of you felt it. Something I should have shared and failed to do with the church. Just to, just to think. Should we all know this? Yes, of course. Anytime God is moving, there's going to be a counter strike. It's all militaristic terms. Everything that is out here is military. So we have to understand what he is setting out to do. And I'm going to say something to you right now that in your mind you know, but you probably haven't thought through. Satan's goal is not simply to try to get you to sin. That's not his goal. To look at pornography, cheat on your, your spouse, whatever. Do drugs, pick whatever, whatever sin. That's not his goal. It's to draw you away from God. The sin in and of itself will do that. He knows that if he puts that temptation out there and you fall for it, eventually you will step backwards away from God. But it's more than just simply the sin aspect. There are a lot of things that he puts out there that will draw us away from God. In Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, this is Isaiah speaking, and what is going on here? Well, what's he talking about? Their sins separated them from God. Why? That was part of the covenant. As a result of that, curses will come upon you. See, the enemy put a temptation in front of the nation of Israel to draw them away from the covenant, because while they were obedient to it, there was nothing they could do. They were blessed. God's hand was upon them. We'll talk more about that next week. But understand this. There was nothing. When they went into the promised land, all they had to do was go. God would take care of the rest. What was the temptation? Look at the size of them giants. 
You see, he's not just simply trying to get you to sin. It's to draw you away from Jesus. It's to draw you away from the church. It's to draw you away from his words. In Matthew chapter 4, we see an example where he is trying to draw Jesus away from God, away from who he is. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We read this last week, but I want you to understand this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he's attacking him and tempting him in his immediate needs, his immediate desires, his immediate wants. Y'all go 40 days without food. Toast sounds awesome. Verse 5, the devil took him up in the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands you, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What's he trying to do? Prove yourself. You, you make a claim, you prove it. Verse 8, again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and ministered to him. You see, he tried to get him to fall. Why? It wasn't the bread. It wasn't the power is that if he succumbs to any of that, what is he not? He's not Messiah. Can't be. You can't be sinless and have sinned. You can't be the spotless lamb and have spots. That's not how that works. He's the sinless son of God. So what did he do? Put things in his way that would tempt him to fall away from God. Now, does that make sense? Y'all with me so far? Sin is not just sin like, oh, I did wrong. I'm so sorry. It is to draw you away from God. Now, let's look at something else that we read last week. Talking about the parable of the four soils. In Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8, you will see that these things are laid out very clearly. But let's look at them because we talked about them ad nauseum in Luke 8 verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Why does he want, not want them saved? They would have been taken from his kingdom and put into the kingdom of God. And then what happens? What if they believe the word? What if they believe what Jesus said when he said, go and make disciples? We don't want that. So he goes and steals that word from their heart. The ones on the rock are those who when they hear receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who keep having heard the word with a noble and good heart keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now the moral of the story is what? What are we to do? Bear fruit. There's one good group. I want to be in that group. I'll take 30. I'm good. Y'all can have 60 or 100. I'll take 30. I'll call that a win. The whole thing is, is that he's giving an illustration of what we should be doing. Advancing the kingdom of God. That is our job. To go into the enemy's camp and plunder it. Make disciples. But there's two groups in there 
who can't or won't because in times of temptation, what do they do? They fall away. What were they tempted with? I don't know. Perhaps it was the cares of this world, the riches and the pleasures of life. Perhaps it's where, hey, you should go take this new job because your boss doesn't appreciate you. He doesn't think you're good enough. He's not paying you enough. You go over there, you take this job. They're going to pay you so much more money. What if that's a way to draw us away from God? What if our family members are the ones being used to draw us away from God? Hey, you don't need to go to church today. Let's just, let's go catch the football game. Or we're going to have a family get together today. Again, don't misunderstand me. It's not like any of this stuff is necessarily wrong. But what if we drew our line and say, it's like, no, Sunday is where the church gathers. I'm not going to a game. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here. Oh, Junior, he's a great baseball player. And so we're going to just take him away, and he's going to be gone all summer traveling, playing baseball. He's going to make the major league someday. What if that's the way that the enemy is using to draw us away from God? It seems so simple. It seems so innocent. But what if those are just some examples of what the enemy is doing? We have to know who the enemy is, how he works. You see that in the beginning, what did he do? He tried to draw Adam and Eve away from God. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what doesn't it sound wonderful to have your eyes open to be like God and to know good and evil? Doesn't that sound like a wonderful thing? It does. What's he putting in front of them? Something to draw them away. So what does she do? Well, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate. And what really messed up mankind is her husband listened to her. You see, what we have here is that what, in the moment of temptation, she began to justify, like, well, it does look good. It's a nice looking tree. It's good for food. I'd like to be wise. You see, what we do is we justify, but that little temptation was not to just make them sin so death could enter the world or whatever you want. It's to draw them away from God. Why? What was Adam told to do? Tend the garden, keep it. Be fruitful, multiply, expand the garden. What are you guys called to do? Disciples of Jesus. Expand the kingdom. You see, there's also false prophets, false teachers. We'll talk more about this next week. But they too draw people away from God. That is what they do. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, and we'll drill into this more deeply next week, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by the fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree does not uh, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So, what's he talking about? These are people who look good and are bringing a message of destruction. Inside, they're ravenous wolves. They are on the prowl, on attack. What are they doing? Advancing their kingdom. What happens? 
we're not watching, catching, because some will be taken away by the teaching of devils and demons and all of that. See, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith. They're on mission. You and I are sitting in our kingdom thinking nothing can come against us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 3. See, this is the aspect of knowing who our enemy is. And I wrote this very thing to you. Lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all uh, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me. But all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now he's talking about forgiveness, and how we need to forgive. And why does he say that? If we don't, Satan may take advantage of of us. We are not ignorant of his methods, devices, methodos, methods, the ways of which he will attack. Are we ignorant of his devices? Yeah, many of us are. Because we're not aware of it. We just kind of think, no weapon formed against me will prosper. I don't care how many times you say that. You can say it all the times that you want. Until you actually believe it and live it out. Those weapons will come and they will prosper. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to show you something here. Verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And once you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, this prince of the power of the air is who we saw earlier in Corinthians that he was talking about. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but... So now we see this, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved uh, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what do we see here? We see a dichotomy of the two kingdoms. You've got the world's way, according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of air, that causes you to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And then you have God's way, which you enter into his kingdom, not by works that you do, but by works that he's done. And now he pushed that grace on you. His exceeding richness is of his grace, his kindness, his love, his mercy is poured upon us. And as a result of that, what do we do? We do the good works that we were predestined to beforehand, which means that we go out and we make disciples. It's all connected. The moment somebody's born again, they just signed up. For the military 
Unfortunately, there's no sign-on bonus. But you don't go to hell, so that's good. I mean, think about this, church. This is what we have here. Is that we have a simple belief system. That Satan is out there trying to tempt us to sin. So that we be sinful. That's nothing. It's to draw your heart away from God. If He gets your heart, everything else will follow. We'll go into that more. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, what works is he talking about? The ultimate good works of doing what he called us to. Being obedient to what he said to make disciples. But what do we use? Scripture. It's always Scripture. See, we have to have a basis for something. You have to understand what I'm getting at here. Is that we have to reframe our minds a little bit to understand what's taking place. The reason the church in America is so lethargic today is because we are not engaged in active spiritual warfare. We are not actively thwarting and going after the kingdom of darkness. Therefore, we are not a threat. Do whatever you want. We are the two soils. The cares and pleasures of lies. The deceitfulness of riches. All of these things. That's where we are. But let me show you something in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, how did they test them? There were apostles who came in saying they were apostles, and said they aren't, and you know that. How do you know that? You tested them. Against what? the word and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary what what does it mean to labor for my namesake you're doing the works you're out making disciples but look at verse four nevertheless i have this against you that you have left your first love remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'm not going to get into all of that, but understand this. All the things that they had been doing, they had stopped that first love. What was the first love? Chasing after God, doing the commands of Him. What happened? A temptation come against them. And now they have gotten lethargic. They are not doing the works. What does He say? repent you have fallen and do the first works go down to verse 12 and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells but I have a few things against you because you have uh, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam we'll talk about that next week who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, in brief, understand that when he talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it is talking about worship to false gods. There was temple prostitutes. There was a lot of stuff that was going on. It wasn't good. But why? What was the big problem? Do you think in any way is possible that those who held the doctrine of Balaam, 
who were committing the sexual immorality and the other things that they were told not to. Do you think that they were in lockstep with what God was doing in the moment? Did they wake up every morning and just say, Lord, I'm so grateful to be alive. How may I advance your kingdom today? I haven't talked to my neighbors lately. I need to go share the gospel with them. You think that's what's going on? No, of course not. Those sins draw their hearts away from God. That's the enemy's goal. You see, every temptation is not simply to get you to act out on a sin. One sin will not kill you. What it will do is it will slowly begin to draw your heart away from God. Look at Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to end here for today. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's an interesting statement, don't you think? The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And you know what other names of gods that we could put there? We could put all sorts of them. But the thing is, he said, you cannot serve two masters. If the enemy can get you to turn your eyes away from Jesus and begin to sin, are you beginning to serve two masters? Are you becoming children of destruction once again? Absolutely. It's not simply to get you to sin. We are to be on the offensive. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God to do what? Pull down strongholds. That implies we're reaching out to pull them down. You know what we're doing? We're kind of sitting here waiting to watch them fall. They haven't fallen yet. I wonder why. I want you to begin to think about this. I want you to chew on this this week. As we go a little deeper into this next week. Is you've got to understand something. We're waiting to be attacked. But if you're no threat. You don't have to worry about that. It's time that we start to think biblically. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and we thank you that it guides every step of our lives, Lord. I just pray, Father, that you open our eyes and hearts to hear from you, to know the truth of what you have said, that we can be in lockstep with you, to be in full obedience to your word, your calling. Lord, that everything that we do is to bring glory to you. And I just pray, God, that you open our hearts and eyes so we can understand exactly why we are here and what we are to be doing. That we will just get rid of this social gospel that we have accepted. The one that has maybe given to us since we were kids and start really digging into what you have said and what we are to do, Lord. And so I just thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified in every aspect of our lives as we go out there and do your work of making disciples. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.